Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today, we have a fascinating topic. We have discussed contraception on the show in terms of physiology, medical side effects, and morality. Today, we take a different view through the lens of economics. Economist Tim Reichert will explain to us the economic effects of contraception on society. While there will be a minor discussion about how this affects money and finances, the major aspect of economics truly is explaining and predicting human behavior based on the availability of resources. So buckle your seats for an invigorating and eye-opening journey. You know, we first heard from Dr. Reichert at a conference a few years ago in, in setting up this interview, we were kind of reviewing some of the things that he talked about at that time. And one of the things we thought would be good to, to set the background information for this interview was Pope Paul VI predictions he made in Humanae Vitae. And the reason I think this is important is that when Tim Reichert spoke in Denver in 2017, he mentioned that uh, there is a correlation between contraception and the predictions that the Pope made. But he said through the science of economics, he can also show causation. Because correlation doesn't mean that two things are related. Uh, for instance, just because colder temperature is associated with more kids in school, it doesn't mean that cold temperature causes kids to go to school. Okay, that's correlation without causation. He's going to show us causation in some fascinating ways. So what are some of your favorite, what's one of your favorite prophecies that Paul VI made, Andrew? Well, you know, we, we talk about them as prophecies, but, you know, in my mind, they, they flow. And I guess maybe now, so many years later, it, it just makes sense hearing from people like Janet Smith and, and reading Humana Vitae. But, you know, starting right out, the biggest thing he talks about is generalized infidelity and moral decline of the culture at large, not only sexual morality, but really at large. Yeah, can anybody deny that the divorce rate is up, abortion is up? out-of-wedlock pregnancies are up, venereal disease is up. I mean, all these horrible things have increased as contraception uh, started in the early 1960s, at least with the pill started. There was contraception before that. Well, and even the, the idea that is so prevalent in modern society that you can somehow be immoral sexually, but in a responsible way. You know, and there's there's not a way to practice vice virtuously, right? Somebody famous said that. That wasn't me. And I like that. The, the, the moral of the story is that there's no responsible way to practice infidelity. And so that's really just a misnomer that the culture has continued. But Pope Paul VI predicted this. And, you know, the pill was supposed to liberate women and increase respect for them when Paul VI predicted correctly that there would be loss of respect for women. I mean, it, uh, you know, contraception tends to objectify the woman, not treat her as a subject, as a human person, but as an object for, for somebody's pleasure. And I don't think any woman really wants to be treated that way. Yes, and, and additionally, another prophecy that he predicted was the abuse of power, using, you know, the, the ability to stop births to some extent as a means of controlling large groups of people. We see this today even in China where certain populations are totally, you know, limited in their reproductive capacity by the government. Right. And that is not the government's purview. And finally, 
uh, you know, um, Paul VI said that contraception would, would make us think that we have unlimited dominion as human beings over all aspects of creation. And, and that's just a myth. God has dominion over everything. We certainly don't. Yeah, contraception kind of tries to chip away at the idea that life is a mystery and we are not masters of our lives. We're stewards, you know, and if you can limit the idea and separate the idea of having babies from having sex, then all of a sudden, why can't you have babies without sex? Like in vitro fertilization. Which or, came a few years after Roe v. Wade. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you separate things that God has naturally put together, really there are no limits. And that's where we see things like euthanasia. Now we're even getting into genetic modifications of the human genome. If there is no such thing as right and wrong, then all these things kind of naturally follow. And contraception really was the, the roots to, to all of this, I think. I think you're absolutely right. And before we go to our break and prepare to bring on our guest, we will pose our patented medical trivia question of the day. Today's Pen, question comes Tom, from us. I think. Excuse Pen, me? Pending. Impending, yes. <laughs> According to the United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs, yep, there's that word economic, as of 2019, there were 1.9 billion with a B women of reproductive age. That's 15 to 49 years old for those of you keeping score. Out of that, 1.1 billion women were trying to avoid pregnancy. How they know that, I don't know. But that sounds even spookier than Santa Claus knowing if we've been bad or good. <laughs> anyway, out of those 1.1 billion, about 30 million use a fertility awareness method that we might call natural family planning, while 50 million use immoral, non-technological methods. So, out of the remaining 1.02 billion, or 1,020 million women, how many of those women are using contraceptives? Or you might use a percentage. What percentage of that 1,020 million women worldwide are now thought to be using contraceptives? We'll have the answer toward the end of the show. First, we have a break here from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. We're back to welcome our special guest, Dr. Tim Reichert, who's going to talk about the bitter pill, the economic effects of contraception on society. Tim's been with us for a podcast-only episode on the economics of pandemic, which is fascinating. Search for it on our podcast websites. Tim is president, CEO, and co-founder of Economic Partners, LLC. He got his bachelor's at Franciscan University in political science, a master's in international political economics from the Catholic University of America, and a PhD in economics from George Mason University. He has over 20 years of professional experience in applied economic consulting. He focuses on tax controversy and planning, and he has great experience in many industries, including banking, biotech, healthcare, insurance, and the pharmaceutical industries. Tim, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Tim, in conversations I've had across the country, mostly with young women and my uh young adult daughters and their friends, it seems that faithful Catholic young women everywhere are bemoaning the lack of available potential husbands. I've heard dramatic stories of such women settling for men just to get married and then regretting it and divorcing, often with a child within a few years. Are, are these just anecdotal stories, or is what I've observed part of a cultural trend? 
Well, I see the same thing, Tom. And no, I, I don't think that this is just anecdote. I, I think the data are very clear. You can look to organizations like Pew Research, which looks at the most marriageable cohort, which is ages uh, 25 to 35 in um, across a, a number of decades. So they started in 1960, 70, 80, all the way through 2010. So, so let's call that cohort of people at any given time, folks between the ages of 25 and 35, the marriage cohort. So the people who were in that cohort in 1960, around 5% of them never married. Uh, hmm. Of those in the marriage cohort in 1980, around 9% never married, so it almost doubled. Wow. Um, move forward to 2000 and Pew forecasts that around 20% of people in the marriage cohort in that year, 2000, will never marry. And then finally, uh, Pew's data suggested of the people in the marriage cohort in 2010, uh, again, between the ages of two, 25 and 35 in the year 2010, 25%, about a quarter will never marry. So marriage That's, is becoming less popular. It, well, I think less popular is is uh, is perhaps true. It's also just sort of much harder to achieve. And the same Pew study points out that only 12% of the 25 to 35 year olds in 1960 were unmarried. And uh, in 2010, that number is 47%. Recent census data show that in 2018 the number is 60. So, wow, the marriage yeah it's a big number. So the marriage market is is broken. Um, it's much more broken for women than for men. Uh, for women, the percent of unmarried women who want to be married uh, but can't find a mate averages about 50 percent uh, for women between the ages of 20 and 40, and it's around 62 percent for women in the marriage cohorts. This is well documented. Um, it comes out of a study from study called Relationships in, in America, uh, Mark Regneris documents it in his very excellent book called Cheap Sex. So we kind of have to ask ourselves, why is this happening? What, what, what has changed? And, and the answer, in my view, is that one technology, contraceptive technology, has really fundamentally altered the way that our species mates and bears children. And so you're going to, in this interview, show us how there's not only correlation, but likely causation. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I argue that contraception explains uh, the breakdown of the marriage market better than any other potential causal explanation. Tim, how, how did you get interested in the economics of contraception? Uh, so it's a good question, Andrew. I, you know, I've, I've always been interested in um, causal relationships, uh, including you know, the causes of social decline. Um, and as an economist, I've always been of the view that technology matters uh, immensely to culture. Um, so, so why is that? Because technology, does, it, what it does is it changes the relative prices of certain kinds of behavior. It changes the cost benefit math of different behaviors. And over time, those behaviors aggregate into cultural norms. So are there so prices that are non-monetary prices? So when you say price, what would be included in that concept? Sure. Yeah, great, great question. So, so a, a non-monetary price is any sort of cost of a behavior uh, that, that doesn't sort of cash out in dollar terms. So that cost might be emotional. It might be uh, a, a time cost that has uh, you know, an implicit monetary value. That's what I mean. Got it. Um, yeah. So... So anyway, so that's that's one part of it. I, I, I became interested for those reasons. The, the other is that um, social norms and outcomes regarding uh, marriage, sexuality, family, child rearing, they've been changing, as we all know, dramatically over the course of our lifetimes. 
And I think in general, those changes haven't been good. So you put these two things together and the question that one question that seemed worth pursuing for me was whether technological change, that is the arrival of contraceptive technology, chemical contraceptive technology caused the outcomes we've been seeing uh, since the sexual revolution. So you're um, saying more than non-technical, more than, you know, condoms or withdrawal or other immoral things, you think the pill sped it up or caused it? For sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I've, I've sort of thought for a long time that, Paul VI's predictions about what would happen if there was widespread societal adoption of chemical contraception were intuitive. Um, but the problem was that, you know, his argument was really more the nature of prophecy than causal argumentation. He didn't explain why right. these things, you know, skyrocketing divorce and other bad outcomes would happen. And so, so people didn't listen, Catholics included. So I started to research this and I found some basic economic logic that I believe explains most of what we see. You made an astounding claim. I, I listened this uh, last weekend to the talk you gave in 2017, and, and your claim is this, that there is no more fundamentally cultural altering technology than contraception, not even the computer or internet revolution, not even antibiotics. This sounds astounding. I mean, what do you say to people that think that sounds crazy? Well, I, I would say compare it to any other technology, name it. Um, I think no other technology so fundamentally alters the marriage market, no technology so fundamentally alters the relationship between the sexes, which is kind of the beating heart of our species. Aside from questions involving man's relationship with God as a species, the question of how we marry, how we have and raise children is maybe the most important question of all. No other technology is so fundamentally altered the answer to that question, you know, since, since Gary Becker did his work on the economics of the family at the University of Chicago in the 60s and 70s, economists have recognized that what happens in the family sort of doesn't stay in the family. So families, <laughs> family structure and marriage formation is fundamental to consumption patterns, interest rates, the labor market, macroeconomic policy, and of course, our, our politics. So you know, compare this to the main, say, computing candidate, computing, right, Com computing technology. Computing is also culturally very important, um, but it has taken decades to really uh, fundamentally alter our, our social landscape. By contrast, con contraception had effect almost immediately. You know, furthermore, I would say computing technology is really about decreasing transactions cost. It, it decreases the frictions uh, that exist in human interaction. And that's got a profound cumulative effect over time. But, but for the most part, it takes existing patterns of behavior and makes them more efficient. By contrast, what does contraception do? It fundamentally alters existing patterns of human behavior. And, and, and we're not talking about just sort of any human behavior. We're talking about the most important human behaviors. Now, now Tim, you're an economist. And when people think economics, they think primarily uh, money, maybe Wall sure. Street, something like sure. that. Can you explain for us exactly what economics studies and how that impacts this, this whole discussion? Sure, yeah. So uh, most people think that economics is the study of prices, markets, financial data, macro data, and so forth. And, and it, is, it is that as well. But, but it really, in some sense, isn't. Um, it's, it's by no means uh, 
limited to that sort of a superficial notion of what economics is about. Sure, we study those things, but economics is really about the study of human behavior. It's the study of how and why people make decisions, how they optimize across various domains of life subject to the constraints they face. So as an example, economists today study the development of law. They study constitutions. There's actually a field of economics called constitutional economics. Um, they study the behavior of bureaucracies, gangs, gang behavior, marriage and sexual decisions, family dynamics, the emergence of norms, all these sorts of things. And, and these aren't sort of non-economic once you realize that all behaviors are attempts to achieve a good, right? That's what Aristotle said, and that, yeah. that's what economists think too, subject to constraints. So we're talking about sort of constrained optimization, and that's sort of at the heart of uh, how economists model and think about decisions. Or, or could we also term it as decision-making when there are scarce resources? Yeah, scarcity is what gives rise to constraints. That's why it's constrained uh, optimization. That's exactly right, Tom. So when you spoke to us three years ago at the CMA annual meeting in Denver, you mentioned that there are three foundational concepts that go into understanding the relationship between um, uh, contraception uh, in economics. The first one is something you call matching markets. You've already mentioned it. Would you fill that out for our listeners? Sure. Yeah, this is, uh, this is key. So, so going back to your question about what e economists study, one of the things we look at uh, is what are called matching markets. So matching markets are best understood by contrasting them with regular markets. In regular markets, we match supply with demand through price. Have you ever wondered, for example, how it is that we have exactly the right amount of bread every day in Denver, Colorado? How does that happen? It's like sort of a miracle. Um, how, how is it that we have just the right supply to match against demand? And the answer is prices. Prices adjust to increase or decrease the incentives to suppliers, bakeries, such that we exactly match these two things, the, the amount produced with the amount consumed. So matching markets are settings in which we still have to match two sides, like, for example, men and women in the marriage market, but we have to do that without prices. And further, when we do this matching, each side has preferences over the other. So each man may have preferences for certain women over others, and each woman may have preferences over certain men, uh, or rather for certain men over others. So so you're trying to match people in the best possible way. You're trying to make matches such that women, you know, get their preferred husbands in the marriage market and, and vice versa. Um, so when economists study matching markets, they're, they're interested, it's a really interesting field. They're interested in a couple of things. So first, they're interested in what we call stability. So are matching market outcomes, are the matches stable? So say you've got two women and two men, and let's say you match each of the two men with their second choice. So neither of these guys marries their preferred spouse. And let's say that that pairing is also one in which both women, they got their second choice, their least preferred man. So that's not a stable pairing. That's pretty obvious, right? That's not a stable pairing or, or matching because both of the men have an incentive to switch instead of both of the women. So in, in general, a stable pairing in a matching market is one in which no two pairs have an incentive to swap partners. And so again, the question we study is what are the properties of matching markets that produce this stability? Because if there isn't stability, then the matching mechanism just isn't very good. Um, another one of the things we're interested in with matching markets is, is, uh, is whether they're, they're balanced. There's this term balance. Uh, unbalanced matching markets. So markets in which you have more 
on one side than the other, a surplus, so to speak, tend to be, first of all, unstable. And uh, second, they produce very bad outcomes for the surplus side. And this, I think, is exactly uh, what contraception does, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Tim, are there other examples of matching markets that we might recognize in our daily lives besides kind of the marriage market? Yeah. Yeah. So, so one example that your listeners uh, will understand very well, I think, is the hospital residency market. Um, as you guys certainly know, every year, you know, thousands of graduates of, of med school are matched to hospitals for their residencies. Um, and in, interestingly enough, that, uh, that matching mechanism, the algorithm that, that does the matching, was uh, designed by a guy named Al Roth, Alvin Roth, who is uh, he's Nobel laureate in economics. He spent most of his career, I think he's still at, uh, at Harvard. Uh, another example in the medical field uh, is, the, is kidney transplants, the matching uh, market, so to speak, uh, also designed uh, by Al Roth. And then there's examples outside the medical space that, that, that other people would be um, more familiar with, so uh, online dating platforms, uh, college admissions, things like Uber, which is matching a, a set of riders to a set of nearby vehicles. These are all matches that are made using a decision criteria uh, and in most cases, that decision criteria is baked into some kind of uh, algorithm. You know, you make economics sound a lot more fun than any ever, anybody ever made it sound when I was going to college. It's the best kept secret. Sorry, I missed the last part of your question, Tom. No, no, that wasn't a question. That was a comment. So did you um, go to, co- when you went to college, did you know that this was what economics was all about? Or did you start with political science and then discover it? The latter. Uh, you know, I, I, I realized... Um, probably late in my undergrad, that uh, economics was far more expansive than I, I had perhaps been led to believe. So just through my own reading, and uh, I, I began to realize, gee, if, if you really want to, to do Catholic social teaching well, which at the time I did, still do, but, but uh, that, was a, that was a big area of emphasis for me, it would make a lot of sense to uh, to pursue economics uh, because of what we've been talking about. It's a, it's a field that is just fundamentally interested in how equilibria, how social results emerge, and uh, and how to uh, think about whether those results are likely to be good or bad. Uh, I thought well, that yeah, go ahead. Sorry. We want equilibria, but unfortunately, we end up now with marriage being an unbalanced matching market. What are the consequences of an unbalanced matching market? Okay, so again, an unbalanced matching market is one in which you've got too many people on one side. Um, and the, con- the consequences are, are very intuitive. Uh, first of all, you get people who are left out, right? People who don't get a match, which goes back to the, the first question you posed to me. Um, second, if you're on the surplus side of the market, the side with too many people, uh, you end up competing in some way for the scarce matches, the scarce members of the other side, uh, which means that the scarce side gets a great deal and the surplus side gets a terrible deal. There's this kind of redistribution. It's exactly what it is, in fact. It's a redistribution from one side to the other. And then there's a third consequence that's worth mentioning, which is that um, I alluded to this earlier, unbalanced matching markets are just far less stable. Um, the reason for this is that the surplus side has this group of excess people, so to speak, uh, who can't find a match. And among other things, these people increase the odds that existing matches can be broken up. This is simply the case because on the surplus side, these people will, pr- will prefer a match to no match. 
Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the matching market in the first place, right? So, so if any of the matched parties on the scarce side prefers any of the unmatched parties on the surplus side, you have unstable pairings. And this breaks existing matches. It unsettles the whole market. So I get that that's a bit technical, but there's three characteristics of unbalanced markets that sort of matter for our discussion today. One, some people get left out. Two, people on the surplus side get bad deals and people on the scarce side get good deals. And then three, unbalanced matching markets are just not very stable. You know, Tim, in, in your presentation that, that we heard you give a few years ago, you discussed that contraception divides what's supposed to be a balanced marriage market into two unbalanced markets. How, how does con- contraception turn a balanced marriage market into an unbalanced market? Okay. So, yeah, this is kind of the key, and uh, it's hard to do without a whiteboard, so I'll do my best. What, what happens is <laughs> I is remember this. the grid you drew out at yeah, the presentation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is this. Um, first, contraception means, of course, that you can have sex without children. So in effect, this means that you can have sex without getting married. What, why? Because marriage developed, particularly in the West, as an institutional response to the fact that women with children are vulnerable when they're on their own, which means that children are vulnerable. Right? So it's a societally sort of, uh, I would say, um, optimal institution. So men who impregnate women have to stay with them, and women who are interested in men won't let them impregnate them if there isn't a promise of staying. That's just the fundamental deal. It sounds a bit basic, but it's true. Um, now, it's important to understand that, that pre-contraception you had this nearly perfect balance in nature. Um, What I mean by this is that in nature, the so-called sex ratio, uh, which is the ratio of men to women, is exactly equal to one at sexual maturity. So in other words, in nature, you have equal numbers of men and women at sexual maturity. And this in turn means that in a world in which sex equals marriage and marriage equals sex, uh, these two things go hand in hand, you have equal numbers of men and women in the marriage market. So you have a balanced market. Once contraception sort of comes on the scene, it separates these two things, right? It separates sex and marriage. And so you get two matching markets instead of one. You get a market for sex, which most people now inhabit during the early phases of their life cycle. And you get a market for marriage, which most people inhabit later in life. Okay. So what? Well, it, it, turns out, and it's pretty intuitive, that for uh, biological and other reasons, women will exit the sex market and enter the marriage market quite a bit earlier in their life cycle than men at an earlier age. And this makes the math pretty easy to understand. If, if Think about it. If, if on average women exit the sex market and they start looking to get married at the age of 30, but men exit the sex market and start looking for a marriageable mate at age 40, you're going to have a lot more women in the marriage market than men. And um, that's exactly what's happening. Of course, the, the converse is also true. If you have more women in the marriage market than you do men, it follows that you have more men than women in the sex market. And so... Do we have any idea what the ratio might look like? I remember in the talk you mentioned as much as 150 men for every 100 women in the sex market and the reverse in the marriage. Are the numbers anything that bad? Yeah, so there are some estimates. I, I don't think these estimates are good because, well, I should say I don't think they're reliable simply because it's just a hard thing 
to answer without a well-constructed survey. And to my knowledge, no one's done that yet. It's actually part of the part of the research I'd I'd love to do. Uh, we were talking earlier about the, the possibility of a yes. project around this. So, um, but um, but you, so I guess the bottom line is is you get you get a sex market. Uh, in which women are scarce and men are surplus, and you get a marriage market, which is really what matters for society, in which men are scarce and women are surplus. And so this, this takes us back to the first question you asked me, which is, uh, hey, Tim, why does it seem like so many young <laughs> women want to marry but can't find a mate? Well, here's your answer. It's, it's the simple math of contraceptive technology. And that's a great point to end the first part of our interview on. We'll be back with more on the economics of contraception with Tim Reichert after the break. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. Tim Reichert about the economics of contraception and what should make sense to everybody based on economics. And so kind of continuing, Tim, with what we were talking about, you know, you argued in, in your presentation that the effects of separating the marriage and the sex markets and unbalancing of these markets were quite bad. Tell us about how this plays out in daily life. Okay. So I make two main arguments. The first involves <clears throat> outcomes for women and children, and the second has to do with outcomes for society. Um, women, again, as I, as I explained uh, in the first segment, are the scarce resource in the sex market and the surplus uh, resource or side in the marriage market. And this is why we had TV shows in the late 90s and early 2000s like Sex and the City, which celebrated the seemingly wonderful world of sexual freedom and female scarcity in, in the New York City sex market at the same time that women's outcomes were broadly in decline in this country. Women were suffering from rising divorce, poverty, which correlates with uh, divorce uh, almost uh, better than any other correlate was, was on the rise for women and children. So basically young women who occupied the sex market were having a great time, at least uh, as we'd be led to believe. And, uh, but once they entered the marriage market, they encountered a much more difficult landscape. To expand on that, the, the key point here is that for most of their adult lives, women inhabit the marriage market. Uh, so for most of their adult lives, they're on the surplus side of an unbalanced matching market, and this gives rise to, to bad outcomes for them. So what are, what are those? So first, many are nebul, never able to marry. Um, and this is, a, this is a loss for millions of, of women. It's a, it's a tragedy on a huge scale. I already gave you the statistics from the Pew study and the census, but it's worth repeating. One in four women in the marriage cohort, ages 25 to 35, as of 2010, won't marry. And remember that according to that Relationships in America study, over 50% of unmarried women who want to find a mate cannot. So that's the first. The second, those who do marry tend not to marry as well as they otherwise would have. And there's all kinds of evidence on this. So Many studies have looked at so-called natural experiments, other settings in which men were scarce, such as post-war societies, uh, particular epidemics that hit men hard relative to women. Um, 
regions with large numbers of incarcerated males. So Charles and Luo did a study, I think it was 2008, uh, and they show that women either uh, fail to marry or marry very poorly in regions with large numbers of incarcerated males. Um, similarly, socioeconomic outcomes, the ways in which uh, marriage either lifts you up or does the opposite uh, are worse in areas with otherwise similar demographics. So Brainerd in a 2007 study um, showed the same thing with post-war populations involving male scarcity. So this literature goes back uh, to at least 1983 to a woman named Marsha Gutentag, whose study, uh, which was a landmark, looked at, at women's outcomes relative to the sex ratio all the way back to Sparta. That's like 2,500 years. Yeah, so it's a remarkable, <laughs> remarkable book. And, uh, and she argues, I think very persuasively, that, that these outcomes are sharply determined by the sex ratio, how scarce or surplus women are relative to men. Now, I should know, Marsha Gutentag is, is sort of one of the heroes of the feminist movement. So that's, that's important. It would seem like there's probably not a bigger issue for feminism than if half of women want to get married and they can't. Yeah, you would it seems think. like that's yeah. pretty, pretty foundational. Sure. It's, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's sort of one of, the, one of the most important forms of wealth, right? Uh, wealth in a, in a broad sense of the term. I don't mean, you know, just monetary wealth. Right. I mean, you know, human happiness, uh, yes. welfare, right? Uh, the, the, the marital good is perhaps, uh, you know, the greatest human good of all. So uh, to make that scarce as a result of a technology is a, is a tragedy. Um, so you have this, I mentioned two uh, results. The, the third is uh, that unbalanced matching markets are unstable. So the marriage market is, is uh, it becomes unstable. And as a result, you have much higher divorce rates. And this hurts women far more than men. There's two interesting studies here that are worth mentioning. Um, first is a 2012 study by Marcin. Uh, who used variation in the application and the severity of the Comstock laws. These were anti-contraceptive anti laws to show that access to oral contraception increased divorce causally. Um, there's a 2008 study by Jenkins that traces the incomes of men and women following divorce. And this study, pretty interesting, shows that men's outcomes continue to rise after divorce. So basically they show there's, there's almost no detrimental impact whatsoever. Whereas women's incomes uh, do not recover. Five years after the split, they're 10% they're lower on average than the pre-split. And furthermore, women who don't have a job in any of those five years after a marital split or do not find a new partner fare much worse than that. So, so that's the first argument. Outcomes for women and children uh, are bad, plain and simple. Um, but by the way, it's worth noting that there's a subpopulation of men for whom the outcomes aren't very good either. These are the so-called incels, the involuntary <laughs> celibates, uh, you know, men who populate the sex market but you know can't get sex. And this group is the subject of some of uh, Miguel Ulebeck's, uh work, as as many of you know. Um, and they're considered to be sort of a completely alienated group who not only cannot succeed in the sex market, but they're also very unlikely to marry. So this is, this is sort of a new development, right? This is also arguably the result of an unbalanced um, sex market, right? That's it, where men are the surplus uh, side. Kind of an artificial market almost created from contraception. Yeah, 
Yes, with, without a doubt, it's artificial. It's artificial contraception. It creates artificial matching markets, for sure. So those are the outcomes at the individual level for men and women. Now, let's think about this from a societal point of view for just a moment. It's important to understand, I think, two things about this. First, this is ultimately a kind of redistribution, right? Uh, this marriage market outcome is, is ultimately a redistribution of wealth, and I would argue from children to men. Why? Because when married women cut bad deals and they suffer divorce, it means the children are disadvantaged. Um, women are, it's simply a fact, the primary caretakers of the future. They do a far better job of that caretaking uh, on the average than men. And when a society, maybe inadvertently, kind of turns on them, uh, it's turning on its children and on its future. Uh, so, so by redistributing uh, welfare from women to men, you are implicitly redistributing welfare from children to men. Tim, we mentioned that there are three key concepts. We've covered matching markets. We've covered the sex ratio. The third key concept is the prisoner's dilemma. Tell us what it is and why it's important. Sure. So the idea of a prisoner's dilemma comes out of game theory, and it's probably one of the most common social outcomes uh, studied in game theory. So a prisoner's dilemma happens whenever you have two parties, uh, at least two parties, who would be better off collaborating in some way, but each party has an incentive to, as economists say, defect from that collaboration. In other words, they can't trust one another and both know that if they choose to collaborate, the other person is individually better off defecting from collaboration. So neither collaborates and you end up with this sort of individualistic non-trust outcome and both parties are worse off. Simple example of this is overfishing, sort of the tragedy of the commons that I think a lot of people understand. You have all these commercial fishermen. They all know that every one of them, uh, everybody in the industry would be better off if they, they all decreased their catches. But each fisherman knows that if other fishermen decrease their catch, he or she has an opportunity to cheat and catch more and larger fish. They can free ride on the conservation of the rest of the fishing industry. Problem is that everybody faces this incentive and everybody knows that everybody has this incentive. So fishermen rationally choose to overfish and you end up in this, this, this bad outcome, depleted fish stocks. So my argument is that contraception sets up exactly this kind of dynamic among women. Before contraception, women had relatively balanced incentives to, to be chased, as did men, and to force men to be chased. Um, this is because if they became pregnant out of wedlock, they ran the risk that the man would not marry them and they'd be out of the only market at the time, uh, which was the marriage market. So there was this kind of collaboration among women, this kind of, um, uh, this, this kind of uh, cooperation in developing and enforcing social norms around sexual activity out of wedlock. Okay, so you might ask, so why wouldn't women continue to promote these norms in a post-contraceptive world? In other words, if they were better off when there was only a marriage market and no real sex market to speak of, why wouldn't they reject contraception altogether, just not use it? And I think part of the answer certainly is that nobody foresaw how all this would, would work out, right? It was hard to see at the time uh, that you'd have surplus women in the marriage market and this would be detrimental to them and so on. But I, I also think there is this, uh, there's a prisoner's dilemma lurking uh, behind this. So think about the in incentives facing each woman. They would all be better off in the marriage market. In other words, if there was only a marriage market, but once there is a sex market, once it exists, 
if you're a woman, you have, you have the incentive to kind of free ride on the chastity of others. So say there is this norm of chastity. Uh, individually, you can enjoy a little sex outside of marriage while other women maintain the norms of chastity, which in turn maintain a balanced marriage market. So norms are what economists call a public good. And the main problem in the production of a public good is free riding. I can get the benefit of the good from other people's efforts. That's free riding. But if this is the incentive facing all women, uh, then you get uh, sex market participation on a wide scale. And the result is what we've been talking about this afternoon. It's, it's, it's very much like the overfishing problem. Each individual woman faces an incentive uh, that, um, that means, hey, look, I'm, I'm in a marriage market or I will be in a marriage market where the conditions are adverse, so I might as well enjoy some time in the sex market. I think that's really sort of how it plays out. Um, I'm never going to look at overfishing the same way again. <laughs> how, how does this relate to the theory of feminism? Because most feminists, you know, that you would hear about in the news, uh, politicians and whatnot, they support contraception, but your argument implies that they should not. Yeah, this is a very important question. I've just started researching this in, in an attempt to kind of fully answer this question. So I'm, I'm not sure I've worked it all out yet, but here's my current thinking. So, so feminism is, of course, a very complex phenomenon. At its root is this idea that there's a conflict between the sexes rather than complementarity, there's conflict, and that there's oppression of women in various forms and to various degrees by men. So if you look at this idea of oppression and the evidence of it, most of it seems to be sexual rather than economic. For example, the Me Too movement was very centered on harassment or worse, endured by women in the workplace or elsewhere. And all of this is really kind of about objectification of women. All of it conforms, I think, very well to my theory. Right? Consider a world in which women first inhabit a sex market in which they've cheapened the sex that they give. Well, what do men learn? They, they learn that sex is free, there's no obligation, and, and therefore they can stay in the sex market as long as they want. Women are already objectified in that world. Then women transition to the marriage market and they find themselves in a world in which marriageable men are scarce with all the outcomes that we've discussed, all the outcomes that that entails. I think that this is in fact a world in which there is conflict rather than complementarity as a result of this contraceptive technology. And it's a world in which women, uh, frankly, during the most important phases of their adult life cycle, find themselves oppressed. It is a kind of economic, if you will, oppression in the sense that they're the surplus side of the marriage market. Uh, that competition and redistribution that we talked about earlier in contraception is at the, uh, the root of this. So women are, um, you know, forgive me for saying it this way, they're, they're, they're pissed off uh, and I think they should be. The promises made to them haven't panned out. Men don't seem to care. And uh, this social dynamic created by contraception is sort of this powerful reinforcement of these underlying premises of, of feminism. Um, you could then ask, well, why don't feminists argue against con contraception? And, and of course, some of them do. There's an increasing recognition among feminists, generally younger ones, that the pill may not, in fact, have been pro-female. Um, but the majority of, of, of feminists, I think, still argue that the main benefit of the pill is economic independence. Women can become 
equals or better uh, to men by increasing their economic power, right? Having successful careers. And I think there's a couple things going on here. I, I would argue that feminist promotion of contraception is sort of paradoxically entirely consistent with my theory. Again, in a world where you've separated these markets and women are on the losing end of that, there's an incentive to go and get equal bargaining power through careerism. And uh, contraception is sort of an insurance policy against childbearing and its effects on a woman's career, especially single women, which is the, which is, as we mentioned, an increasingly large demographic. And then I also- Are they trying to balance relational losses with economic gains here? Uh, it's a great way of saying it, Tom. Yeah, it's okay. a great way of saying it. Got yeah, it. Go exactly ahead. Right. Second part. I'm, I'm yeah, wondering I just, if you're describing the whole cause of the, the pay gap between the sexes that people talk about so much, if it doesn't come right back to this. Yeah, I've, I've thought about that. I'm, I haven't been able to run all that to ground, so I'm not prepared yet It's to, to, to kind of dive into that, Andrew, because there's a ton of, uh, of uh, empirical work by labor economists on that. And... Uh, you know, before I opine on that, I need to make sure I'm, I'm fully up to speed uh, on the literature. But I think your your point is is uh, your intuition is very good. I think I think there's definitely a there there. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, in answer to this question, why do feminists continue to argue for contraception? Let's be honest. There's a lot of financial and reputational capital behind contraceptive technology. Most feminist scholars. Many pharmaceutical companies have a lot to lose if there's broad-based recognition of the underlying issues here. You know, people don't want to change their minds. Companies don't want to lose profitable business lines. So, you know, academia and industry both contain significant incentives to maintain a, a, a pro-contraceptive stance. Tim, in our last minute, minute and a half, what do you think can free our society from the clutches of this painful prisoner's dilemma? Um, is there any evidence elsewhere in the world that can give us hope? Yeah, great question. I, I think this relates to the last question, actually, about feminism and to the discussion we had about Paul VI. I, I think, I just think we need a much broader awareness of, of what we're talking about here. And I think that a large component of this has to come from Christian churches because they can reach women and influencers far more effectively than, than I can. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you guys are, uh, are better, better positioned uh, to, to reach a large audience than I, um, but I, yeah, I think you do a good job. Uh, and I would say that, you know, Paul the prophecy is fine. Um, but the church for the most part, doesn't really seem to believe Paul the six lay people, unfortunately, um, don't seem to, to, to buy into it. And we need to believe it before it can be preached to the world. And so, you know, my hope is that some of uh, my research can put some backbone behind the traditional Christian objections to contraception because in general, you know, evil is uprooted when it's exposed. It can't stay in the light. So I think the answer is that the Christian churches need to, and I believe at some point they will step forward on this uh, once, and once they do, we'll begin to see change. Tim Reichert, thanks for shining light into an area that has been in too much of darkness. We hope to have you back again on Dr. Doctor. We'll be back with a wrap up here right after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. So to make a long question short, there's just over a billion women in the world who supposedly are trying to avoid having children who could because they're of the right age. What percentage of those women or what number of those billion women are using contraception? It's incredible. The answer, 90%, 922 million of those women. 
Can you imagine what we could accomplish in the world if we were that good with marketing moral action and virtue? Well, I'm, I'm thinking what percent of those women have clean water to drink? Well, you exactly. Know? That's, that's the trouble when you have organizations, they'll send condoms, but, you know, is that really where you want to start? Talking to, to Tim, I mean, man, this is really hurting women, not, not only in America, but throughout the whole world. It's messing up marriage markets. And it sounds like his answer to my initial question about, you know, young women in my family and their friends and others across the country not being able to find marriageable men it's a real thing, and it can be tracked back to this increased acceptance of contraception. I completely agree, and I, I think anecdotally everybody will recognize, man, there's so many, you know, as a proportion, so many nice young ladies, and there are not that many nice young guys. There's a lot of, you know, kind of losers, to be honest. And contraception is a causative agent. And I, my favorite thing that Tim said was how contraception redistributes wealth from children to men. And that really resonated with me because you see it play out in, in the quality of, of environment and circumstances for children nowadays compared to 50 years ago. And something we didn't get to cover, but he also says is related, is that uh, is the reason for interest rates being so low now. Interest is what rich guys with money charge young guys with ideas to put their ideas into action. There are less young guys with ideas. Therefore, there's not as many young guys who want money. Therefore, the interest rates are lower. That's why, as Tim said in his talk three years ago, interest rates are the lowest they have been in not 100 years, but in over 1,000 years. It's incredible. Far-reaching impact. Tim says he's working on a book on this. Well, and I hope he comes out with it because this is something that the world desperately needs to hear. And I think it's, it's something that hopefully if young ladies are hearing this, you know, identify what exactly is going on and hold out for a good guy and, you know, encourage guys to rise to the occasion. And parents, talk to your sons. I mean, I think you see this delayed adolescence as a side effect of this. And so hopefully if we shed light on it, like Tim said, you know, good will prevail. And please listen to his last podcast on the economics in a pandemic. It was also fascinating. Thanks for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning and official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Please rate and review our show. It will help new listeners find us. And please send us your questions or tell us how something you heard on Dr. Doctor changed your life, maybe this episode. And also be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Have you dreamt of visiting the places where Jesus walked or where the saints made their marks on the world? 
Trust your trip to the Pilgrimage Company that more priests, Catholic authors, speakers, and theologians trust. Select International Tours. For 36 years, Select International Tours has provided the very best in pilgrimage travel, including centrally located hotels, the best local Christian guides, and unparalleled access to sacred sites and cultural experiences. SelectInternationalTours.com is the first step on your next pilgrimage.